Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. They make it easier than ever to discover the right content to enrich your life. As a leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible has thousands of titles, including audiobooks, groundbreaking originals, podcasts, and so much more. I love listening to audiobooks on long car trips, which of course I'm constantly on because I live in Los Angeles and it takes 30 minutes to go five miles. Recently, I've been listening to Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, and it is perfect for commuting or driving around the city because it's so funny. I love that it's narrated by Tina Fey. It feels like she's telling me a story on my drive. Right now, you can get one month of Audible for free by using offer code UNRULY. That will get you one free audiobook to enjoy on your next long drive. Go to audibletrial.com backslash unruly to get your free audiobook. And let me know what you pick because I want to know what to listen to next. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y to get your free audiobook. When we tell stories about pirates and pop culture, they're usually about characters like Captain Jack Sparrow swaggering through the lush Caribbean with a bottle of rum in his hand and freedom in his heart. The golden age of piracy of the 17th century is what we're picturing, but pirates have sailed and stolen on the high seas since, well, basically since we figured out how to make boats. So today, I'm telling a story of an earlier pirate, about a century earlier, whose name you might not know, Barbarossa. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Castellanos-Clark, and today I'm covering the tale of Herodin Barbarossa, often also known as Kadir, a legendary pirate from the 16th century. He harassed Spanish shipping in the Mediterranean and helped his older brother establish a kingdom in modern-day Algeria. Before we jump into the tale of piracy on the high seas, I first have to thank all of the paying subscribers on Substack whose patronage helped me make this podcast possible. This would not still be going without you all, and if you like this show and you want more of it, please become a paying subscriber over on Substack. When you upgrade, you'll get access to exclusive content, merch, and behind-the-scenes updates on the upcoming Unruly Figures book. When you're ready to do that, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. All right, let's hop in. He is known by many names. He was born Kizir or Kadir on the island of Lesbos around 1478. In a lot of the Mediterranean, he's remembered by an honorific he was given later in life, Kir ad-Din, which means defender of the faith, and sometimes gets translated or transliterated into English as Herodin. In the West, he's best known by his moniker Barbarossa or Redbeard, but I'll be calling him by his first name, Kazir, throughout this episode. We'll come back to why. Because of the time we're going back to, there are pieces of his life story that are a bit conflicted, starting with his heritage. Though it's well documented that his mother was a Greek widow named Katerina, where his father comes from is something of a mystery. His biographer, Arnold Bradford, in his book The Sultan's Admiral, supposes that his father, Jakob, was a retired Janissary. The Janissaries were an elite military force created by kidnapping young Christian boys from neighboring kingdoms, forcibly converting them to Islam, 
and then giving them a lifetime of military training. So Jakob could have been from anywhere in Eastern Europe, really, Greece, Romania, Albania, Serbia, etc. Jakob and Katerina moved to Lesbos, an island in the, Medi- in the Aegean Sea, in 1462, when the island was taken from the Genoese and incorporated into the Ottoman Empire. As was tradition, high-ranking and deserving soldiers were given property on newly conquered lands. And it's possible that Jakob retired and married Katerina around the same time as he got this land on Lesbos. Janissaries were not meant to marry or have any other trade until they retired, usually around 40 years old. The couple had six children together, two daughters and four sons. Unfortunately, only the names of the boys are recorded in history. I am going to do my best with this Turkish pronunciation, but... Apologies in advance because I know I'm not going to get it perfect. So the boys were named Oroch, Ilias, Ishak, and Kuzir. Now from the island, Jakob began to trade as a potter. He made his items and delivered them to neighboring islands by boat. Once they were old enough, his children began to help him. Oroch helped out on the boat, Ishak became a carpenter, and Kuzir helped out in the pottery. Only Ilias studied to become an imam and had little to do with the business. An almost contemporary named Diego Hayado, a Spanish historian and priest, referred to this early childhood in admiring terms. Bradford notes that many contemporaries and early historians saw Jacob and his wife as, quote, a model family. No hint here at all of bad upbringing leading to violent or disgraceful lives. Throughout his biography, Bradford often compares Kizir's early life to the life of Sir Francis Drake, an explorer, sailor, and sometimes pirate, whom many people in Europe and the U.S. know a little bit better. Both were raised in, quote, poor but religious environments, taught a craft, and expected to fend for themselves as soon as they reached manhood. So as I mentioned, Orish has helped out on the boat, and fittingly was the first one to go to sea, along with his brother Ishak, or sometimes um, written as Isaac. They captained a small galliot together. Sometime in or or around 1490, they had a disastrous run-in with the Knights of St. John, also called the Knights Hospitaller. Orish and Ishak were probably doing legitimate trade with a little piracy on the side. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire at the time often encouraged independent citizens to harass the remaining Genoese who occupied islands so close to Turkey. The run-in was accidental. Both ships seemed to have come around an island and spotted each other at the same time. Though the ship Orish and Ishak captain was probably the faster one, luck was not really on their side that day and they were attacked by the much larger galley. The first shots fired by the knights killed Ishak immediately. Orish was caught and pressed into slavery aboard the galley, manning the oars below deck. This was a brutal and exhausting job. And both sides actually employed slavery um, to gang-press people into service on their ships. The Christian ships, including ships from the Papal States, often had Muslim slaves below deck rowing, and Muslim ships often had Christian slaves below deck. Now, it's unknown how long Orish was enslaved. Most accounts say that the ransom for his return was paid, and he was freed relatively quickly. Other accounts, though, claim that Orch wasn't pressed into service at all, but actually held as a prisoner at Bodrum Castle, which the Knights of St. John owned. In this version, Kazir, his little brother, spends months, maybe years, searching for his eldest brother Orch and finally breaks him out of Bodrum Castle and they escape into the night. This second story is certainly the more romantic and piratical version, 
but it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. There's no record of the castle being used as a prison before 1895, and it doesn't fit in with the tradition of maritime capture at this time. In any case, Orch is released and reunited with his family. Today, we'd probably say that he had PTSD after his ordeal. When Bradford wrote his biography back in, I think, like 1965 or so, he phrased it as, quote, his harsh training at the oar had not made him any great lover of Christians, end quote. On March 31st, 1492, the Mediterranean world was shaken by Spain. King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella I announced that Jews and Muslims who would not convert to Catholicism had to leave Spain by the end of July. Thousands of people fled across the Mediterranean to the shores of North Africa or to other parts of Europe where they felt safer. Jewish people who did convert were called conversos and Muslims who converted were also called moriscos. Both groups would be haunted by accusations that they practiced their faith in secret for generations. Now, before this edict, relations between North Africa and Southern Europe had been relatively good. They were well-connected in terms of trade, at least. But this expulsion inspired revenge in the hearts of people who had lost their homes. As Bradford writes, quote, No sooner were the banished Moors fairly settled in their new seats than they did what anybody in their place would have done. They carried the war into their oppressor's country, end quote. About eight years later, Orch and Kazir arrived in North Africa on two ships. We're not sure what they were up to at first, but it seems clear that Orch was in charge and Kazir was a member of the crew. Already, they were doing something a little differently than other maritime powers. They used a crew of Turkish freemen rather than enslaved Christians to power their boats. The galliots they used required two to three people to an oar, and on larger ships like where Orch had been captured, the enslaved oarsmen were usually chained in place. Perhaps because of this experience, Orch preferred to use free men because he found them more efficient and more trustworthy. Enslaved people could, quote, be expected to mutiny at the first available opportunity. They also couldn't really be fighters because they were chained in place below deck. At the start of a battle, there might not be time to unlock them, and again, they might turn against their captors the second they were handed a weapon. And let's be honest, like, having oarsmen who doubled as fighters both made the ships lighter and also denied folks the time to plot and scheme against their captain. However, we shouldn't assume that they didn't participate in slavery at all. Captured Christians did get sold into slavery by the brothers. There are also some reports that when the brothers sailed out, they usually had, like, one large galley with enslaved rowers where all their food and treasure were stored— and then several small, smaller galleots, which were much faster and more maneuverable in a fight. Now, in 1504, they arrived in Tunis with their ships. They set up a deal with the Sultan of Tunis where they would give him a percentage of all of their captured booty if he would allow them free use of the harbor, which was called La Goleta. They made good use of it, sallying out to capture ships and people along the coasts of Sicily and Calabria. They were immensely successful, bringing an untold number of Christians to Tunis to be either enslaved or ransomed back to their families. Now, European powers noticed basically immediately. In a normal shipping season, which in Europe at the time was during the warm summer months, let's say April to September, maybe starting in as late as May, depending on the region. Um, but during that season, a normal season, they might lose a few ships to bad luck and bad weather. But as the summer of 1504 came to a close, it became clear to the kingdoms along the Mediterranean coast that more was happening, and it might require a concerted effort to put a stop to it. However, Europe at the time was not peaceful. 
Kingdoms were competing and at war with one another all the time. Bradford writes, quote, The extraordinary success of the Barbarossas over the years to come was largely promoted by the fact that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I guess it's here that we should talk about the nickname Barbarossa. Bradford uses it in the plural, even though it's not technically a surname for Kazir or Orish. In fact, the nickname comes from Orish's red beard. Barbarossa is just Italian for red beard, and the moniker got applied as Orish's legendary status as a competent and violent pirate captain grew along the Italian peninsula. Kazir, who is the much more famous brother today, and who I'm technically actually covering in this episode, he did not have a red beard. (laughs) By most accounts, his hair was dark brown or black. He took on the mantle of Barbarossa after his brother's death. I know, spoilers. Sort of like a character the one plays. But the name actually refers to both brothers, or it can, though most people are referring to Kazir when they actually use it. Now, over the next few years, they grew rich by taking ships in the Mediterranean. They occasionally attacked ports, but not as often as is portrayed in pirate movies. After all, if you destroy a port, ships stop going there. They became so well-known that other aspirational pirates volunteered to join their efforts and their fleet grew under these lieutenants. In addition to robbing ships, there are also reports that Kazir specifically began to help ferry moriscos and Muslims who were being oppressed in Spain across the water to North Africa. He took them to places like Tangier, Algier, and Tunis, helping them find places where they could practice their faith safely. It's hard to say when this began, but my guess is basically as early as they got near the Spanish coast. Their power became centralized along the northwest coast of Africa, mostly around Tripoli in the southeast, up toward Tangier, which is right across the Strait of Gibraltar, where Spanish ships often got trapped coming home from the quote-unquote New World that Spain was just starting to colonize. The brothers and pirates sometimes made it as far south along the Moroccan coast as Rabat, but not often, it seems. Their power was most dominant between Algiers and Tripoli, especially as they established their base on the island of Jerba around 1510. In fact, Jerba later became known as, quote, the lair of the corsairs. It's worth exploring why the brothers were attracted to this part of the world. It was far from the reach of the Ottoman Empire, which allowed them to act independently, but it also gave them access to Italian and papal shipping. These wealthy powers had the most to steal from. But it also probably had something to do with the quote-unquote new world that was quote-unquote discovered by Christopher Columbus while sailing under the Spanish flag. Word had gotten back to Europe in 1493 and spread quickly. And when Spanish ships began to regularly return to Spain loaded down with gold and gems... I mean, it was probably an irresistible draw for all kinds of people. And it quickly became clear to the brothers that Jerba was not close enough to those lucrative shipping routes. It was a great refuge, tricky sailing for anyone not familiar with the island, but it was far and didn't have the timber that they needed to build and repair ships. Orish, still leading things at this point, turned his eyes to Bougie, a Spanish garrison 120 miles east of Algiers. Not only did it have a good harbor, but behind it, quote, soared the high peaks of Mount Babor and Tababor, both crowned with fir and cedar, ideal for shipbuilding, while the surrounding countryside, blessed with a high rainfall, was rich in every kind of vegetable, fruit, and cereal crop, unquote. So the thing is, Orich was ambitious, and he had decided that the sea was a means to an end. He wanted a land empire. He wanted to be a sultan himself. Enriched and powerful from capturing ships, 
he decided that 1512 was the year to make this dream happen. He prepared all spring and all summer, probably to the relief of Europeans who managed to go all summer unmolested by pirates, and he attacked the city in August. For seven days, they laid siege to Bougie. The guard fort crumbled and the pirates clambered ashore, ready to kill or scare away the Spaniards. But something went wrong. Orge was shot and it, quote, took away his left arm above the elbow. Unable to continue, his fighters stopped and took him back to the ship to save his life. The city was saved too. Today, many assume that if the pirates had just like left Orge where he lay, they would have taken Bougie that day. But as it was, they retreated to Jerba. While Orch actually lay recovering in Tunis, which took over a year, Kazir came into his own as a leader. Nearly immediately, he captured a ship that belonged to a wealthy Genoese family that was heavily weighed down with treasure. He towed it back to Tunis, where they still had a deal with the local sultan. But this theft opened Pandora's box. The Genoese were furious about the stolen ship, and they came after Kazir and the Turkish corsairs. A squadron of ships, commanded by the famous Andrea Doria, attacked Tunis. Kazir sank six of his own ships in the harbor to prevent them from being stolen, and then sailed out to battle the Genoese in their much larger galleys. They were completely routed, they barely escaped with their lives, and the Genoese stole the six ships that hadn't been sunk. They also burned down the fort guarding the harbor, enraging the Sultan of Tunis. Kazir, perhaps sensing that everyone was pissed, raised the six, the six ships that he'd sunk. Wow, that's hard to say. And also, I didn't know that you could do that before this story. But anyway, he raised the sunken ships and sailed them back to Jerba, where he waited for his brother and the sultan to cool off. During the fall and winter, he and his sailors built three new galliots, replacing some of the ones lost to the Genoese, and established a powder mill in order to manufacture gunpowder. Now, once Orish had finished recovering, they attacked Bougie again. They started the siege in August 1514, and the city might have fallen if the Spanish crown had not coincidentally sent the annual autumn relief of ammunition and other supplies for the garrison to survive the winter. Instead, just as the city was starting to weaken, five large men-of-war ships arrived and Orich and Kizir were forced to retreat. Instead of Jerba, they went to Jajel for the winter. The peninsula was close to Bougie and suggesting that Orich intended to go right back for a third siege when the weather calmed in the spring. Their 1,100 sailors, plus several more adventurers, settled in for the winter, careful to treat the native inhabitants of Jijel well so that they would be welcomed back in the future. But something must have changed. We're not sure what, but 1515 did not see them return to Bougie. In 1516, King Ferdinand of Spain died, and the people of Algiers, which had long been dominated by Spain, reached out to their neighboring Arab ruler, Sheikh Salim, to help them drive out the Spanish garrison um, during that moment of Spain's weakness. Salim, in turn, reached out to Orich and Kizir, quote, inviting them to participate in the liberation of Algiers. They agreed and set out, but then they passed Algiers for a small port called Churchill. There, another Turkish corsair had set him up as a local sultan, a man called Kara Hassan. Orich didn't believe that there was enough room for both of them on that stretch of coast, so he attacked and killed Kara Hassan. He took over Churchill, left a few trusted men in charge, and then returned to Algiers, where he finally began the siege he'd promised. For 20 days, the pirates under Orich and Kizir tried to destroy the walls of the fort. But their ordinance was too light and the fort way too strong. Now, a few details seem to be missing from this story because the next thing we know is that Orch decided that 
in order to kill, drive the Spaniards out of Algiers, he needed to kill his ally, Salim. Which seems like a big leap. We started at point A and ended at, like, K. What happened in between is unclear. Perhaps Salim was not a good military commander and was holding back Orch's efforts to defeat the Spaniards? I'm, I'm really not sure. But either way, Orch stands accused by history of murdering Salim, though we're also not sure how that happened. Some accounts claim he was hanged in the city, but more believable accounts say that Orch snuck into Salim's bath and suffocated him with a wet towel. People were told that Salim had died of a stroke, and Orch was declared sultan of the city. Now, the Spaniards were still in their fort on an island on the outskirts of the city, and until that moment, they had had a deal with the citizens of Algiers. As long as they kept to themselves, the Spaniards would too. They just wanted the garrison to protect their shipping lanes. But that deal was clearly off, so the Spaniards began attacking the city, making life impossible for the inhabitants. The citizens of Algiers suddenly realized that they had escaped the pot only to land in the fire. Life got so much worse for a while. The fighting continued, and in late 1516, the Spaniards were apparently finally driven from the city of Algiers, or at least weakened to the point where they retreated to their fort and did not continue their attack on the city. Now, Orich had what he wanted. He was the sultan of a region of what is today Algeria. In 1517, the Spanish tried to reclaim the land Orich had claimed, but he and Kazir managed to defeat the Spanish fleet. When they fled, Kazir actually took several galleots and gave chase, attacking Spanish cities along the coast. They burned and looted, kidnapping slaves, and brought oppressed Muslims to North Africa. Some of the prettiest women were sent onward to Turkey, destined for the harem of Selim I, a different Selim than the one that was killed by Orich. Satisfied with his wins, Orich retreated to a town further from the coast, Tlemcen. From there, he began to send diplomatic envoys to Fes and Tunis, establishing relations and having himself recognized as a ruler by his neighbors. Kazir remained in charge of Algiers, where he heard rumors of a Spanish attack on Tlemcen. Orich reached out to the Sultan of Fez for help. The Sultan promised to send soldiers, but then he delayed just long enough for the Spanish soldiers to arrive. Orich led his soldiers from the city trying to escape, but they couldn't evade the Spanish, and Orich was killed in a battle. The crimson cloak he was wearing when he died was later taken to Cordova to be displayed, and his head was removed to be taken as proof of his death to the Spanish rulers. Apparently, so many had claimed to kill Orich before and been wrong, or just liars, that they wanted incontrovertible proof. Garcia de Teneo, the man who killed Orich, was allowed to incorporate Orich's head into his coat of arms. Very Medusa-like, right? And in fact, even though Orich had been a thorn in the side of the Spanish for a long time, after death he was treated to heroic poems. It's such an interesting turn that it reminds me a little of that like brief moment late last year on TikTok when people were claiming that Gen Z loved Osama bin Laden. Obviously, that ended up being way blown out of proportion. Gen Z does not support terrorism at large. But it was that strange pattern of like glorifying an enemy that you've already killed almost because he doesn't represent a threat anymore. I don't know. It's an interesting psychological phenomenon. Anyway. Once Orge was dead, Kazir turned around and reached out to Sultan Selim I in Turkey. Though his brother was dead, the kingdom had not yet fallen, and Kazir rightly guessed that Selim would be interested in supporting an Ottoman outpost in far west North Africa. Selim said yes, granting Kazir the title Baylor Bey, again, might not be pronouncing this perfectly, a, um, a very high rank in Ottoman society, equivalent to governor general, 
and he sent him military reinforcements. Now, strangely, the Spanish military actually retreated after the success at Tlemcen, which gave Kazir time to wait for reinforcements and build up his strength. He had 22 ships ready to go in Algiers, and he reinforced garrisons along the coast. Then he lay in wait, sure that Charles V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, would send an attack any day. And sure enough, it came in 1519. But Charles V was not content to just send the Spanish military. He had spent the intervening winter and spring contacting the Genoese, the Monegasques, the Neapolitans, the Pope, the Knights of St. John, the mercenary Andrea Doria, and the French. Everyone, except France, contributed ships to make an enormous fleet of 50 war galleys and up to 450 transport ships. Clearly, they intended to do more than take back Algiers. This was an attempt to drive the, um, the Turkish people out of North Africa entirely. But as with any group project, it took a lot longer than Charles V thought. It would have been ideal to launch the attack in June or July when summer made the Mediterranean calmer, but they didn't leave until late August. They arrived at Algiers on August 24th under a shadow of clouds. Nearly as soon as they landed, the storm broke. Waves began to, quote, burst in rolling fury. Anchors dragged, cables broke, ships collided. Soon, the invasion fleet was scattered up and down the coast, end quote. Hundreds of men drowned, and at least 20 ships were completely destroyed. It remains one of the worst maritime disasters in Mediterranean history. And all of Kazir's soldiers had to do was wait on the beach as the ships broke apart and sailors in loot just, like, washed up on shore. He sat back that winter, wealthier than he'd ever been, secure in his safety. Now, from 1520 to 1529, we don't actually have a lot of details about what Kazir was doing. Historians think he married an Algerian woman around this time. They had one surviving child together, a boy named Hassan. We know he brought the coast of Algeria further under his control, consolidating power into his own kingdom. With a lot of good lumber at his back, he was able to expand his fleet, and soon Kazir alone was a naval power to contend with. Even countries like England, which had previously been safe from corsair predation in the Mediterranean, found their merchant ships attacked both in the Mediterranean and along the western coast of Portugal. Kazir himself sailed often, leaving his capital, Algiers, under the trusted supervision of Hassan Aga. As Kazir's power grew, he attracted, quote, Christian renegades who enjoyed his protection to do their own piracy and looting. They came from France, Venice, Genoa, Sicily, Naples, Spain, Greece, Hungary, Albania, and further. Much like the Sultan of Tunis had done for him and Orish early in their career, Kazir allowed people to sail in his waters with his approval as long as they paid him a percentage and came to his aid if European powers attacked again. Soon, Algiers became incredibly wealthy. The abbot I mentioned earlier, Diego de Aido, wrote, quote, They have crammed most of the houses, the magazines, and all the shops of this den of thieves with gold, silver, pearls, amber, spices, drugs, silks, cloths, velvet, etc., whereby they have rendered this city, Algiers, the most opulent in the world, insomuch that the Turks call it, not without reason, their India, their Mexico, their Peru. And much like how the Spanish treasure ships financed voyages to North America through investments by merchants, Algerian tradesmen invested in the building of galleys that would then rob those treasure ships. As contact between Algerian and European ships increased, many people noted that the pirates were better seamen than their European rivals. 
Heidel wrote, quote, Their galleots are so extremely light and nimble and in such excellent order. The Christian galleys are so heavy, so embarrassed, and in such bad order and confusion that it is utterly in vain to think of giving them chase or of preventing them from going and coming and doing just as they themselves please. When at any time the Christian galleys chase them, their custom is, by way of game and sneer, to point to their freshly tallowed poops as they glide along like fishes before them. Now, this is really interesting to me because Spanish ships were often considered some of the best in the world at this time, but a Spaniard himself is denying that claim. Around this time, Kazir earned the title Kir ed-Din, protector of religion. The title probably came up because of the way that he had helped many Muslims escape Spain for safer shores. Estimates cap out at around 70,000 people that he helped escape servitude and prejudice in Spain. And he's remembered this way in a lot of the Mediterranean. Sources that don't call him Barbarossa often call him Kir ed-Din. Fun fact, though, Kir ed-Din could also be translated as Defender of the Faith, a title that Henry VIII was given in 1521, just about the same time that Kizir was. This isn't really important, though I do think it's funny that two defenders of two different faiths were floating around at the same time, though Henry didn't keep that title for very long. As Kazir aged, he focused on training the lieutenants and captains who managed ships in his fleet. In 1529, that training paid off when three captains and their small galleots came up against eight large war galleys of Spain. In an almost unbelievable turn of events, the Turks won, not only freeing many Muslim slaves on board the war galleys, but also picking up many Moriscos who were trying to escape Spain. They took the captured ships back with them to Algiers. The next year, Kazir decided that he was going to finally drive the Spanish out of their last stronghold in Algiers, that island fortress that had first beckoned them to the city in 1516. The Spanish had never fully abandoned it, despite the end of direct fighting in 1519. The siege began on May 6, 1530, and continued for 15 days. Finally, the fortress fell, and the Spanish soldiers who survived were sold into slavery. A few years later, in 1533, Kazir received an ambassador from Constantinople, today Istanbul. The, the Sultan, Suleiman, had invited him to come to the city for a meeting. Once there, he was tasked with reorganizing the Turkish fleet, which had fallen into disrepair. Some legends say that it was actually Kazir who was responsible for telling Suleiman the Magnificent that whoever ruled the sea would rule on land as well. However, Suleiman had probably already figured this out himself. He could hardly miss how much wealth sea voyages had brought to Western Europe. There was also the rumor that Charles V had been making overtures to Suleiman, asking him to step in and call off the attacks on European shipping. However, Kazir had no desire for peace with Spain, and in fact pushed for an alliance with France instead. He encouraged Suleiman to pursue that avenue, and the two powers eventually did sign a treaty to work together. Though the treaty benefited France in the short term, it actually infuriated a lot of European powers who saw an alliance with the Muslims as a betrayal of Christianity. Clearly, the alliance did not last long. Gazir spent his time in Turkey basically creating the Ottoman navy. I mean, there was one already, but he made it an actual fighting force that could exert Ottoman supremacy in the Mediterranean. He made the navy efficient for the first time, bringing his knowledge from 30 years on the sea to improve their dockyard, their shipbuilding, everything. It was very necessary. Soon after this, Kazir was offered the position of High Admiral of the Ottoman Navy. 
He officially went legit, serving Suleiman the Magnificent in this capacity for around 10 years. As the commander of the Ottoman navy, Kazir captured several islands that had been taken by European powers. He raided enemy cities along the Greek and Italian coasts and kind of just generally fought Charles V at every turn. It's worth noting, however, that Turkish militaries were not allowed to loot the cities they conquered in the same way that European militaries often did. As I mentioned earlier, the Ottomans especially had learned that a ruined city is a bad inheritance. So if they thought that they could capture and control a city, they did not also destroy it. Cities that were burned and looted by Turkish pirates or legitimate Ottoman soldiers were often attacked that way because they represented a stronghold of an enemy and there was little chance of taking and retaining power there. This is a very different practice than what we see in European militaries at this time, and even Catholic chroniclers noted how much better behaved the Turkish soldiers were. Now, this difference often happened because European soldiers went out sort of like on spec, like they were only going to get paid if they were successful at raiding, whereas the Ottomans reliably paid their soldiers a salary. The apex of Kazir's legitimate career was on September 27, 1538, when his Ottoman navy defeated the combined fleets of Venice, Genoa, and the Pope in the Ionian Sea off the island of Preveza. The victory gave Turkey control of the area for at least 30 years and enabled Suleiman the Great to expand the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire, creating a continuous kingdom from Persia to Algiers in the south. The anniversary of this victory is still a national holiday in Turkey, I believe, and is marked by a ceremony at Kizir's tomb. In 1540, Charles V hired the old commander Andrea Doria and a rising star in the Spanish Navy, Hernan Cortes, to once again lay siege to Algiers. As had happened in 1519, the planning stage took way too long and they left way too late and were basically defeated by bad weather again. Kazir was not there at the time, um, but he had left his only son, Hassan, in charge. In fact, after Kazir had left for Istanbul in 1535, he never returned to Algiers. Now, Kazir retired in 1545. He had spent some of his wealth building a palace on the Bosphorus, the strait in Istanbul that divides Europe and Asia. During retirement, he dictated his memoirs. They comprise five volumes. The title is usually translated into English as the Conquests of Herodin Pasha, or sometimes the Invasions of Herodin Pasha. They do not actually seem to have been translated into English like the memoirs themselves, which is too bad. All told, the official count of his expeditions against Spain totals up at 36, which seems very low to me. In 1546, Kizir died in modern-day Istanbul. He is buried in a domed octagonal tomb near his palace, and outside of it stands an enormous marble statue, still looking toward the sea. His legacy is a complex one, not just because of the confusion of the many names he has gone by. In Turkey, Kizir or Kir ed-Din Barbarossa has been the subject of uncountable books, movies, video games, and more. He has made it into European and American tales as well, his complicated reputation creating varied portrayals, most recently, he was the inspiration for Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean, though I take issue with the way he was transformed into a Spanish pirate given that he spent his life fighting the Spaniards. His story deserves another look, and I hope we see a big screen treatment of his tale soon. That is the story of Kazir, sometimes called Kir ed-Din, sometimes called Herodin Pasha, sometimes called Barbarossa. 
If you liked this story, you are going to love my book, Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries You've Probably Never Heard Of. In fact, the story of Barbarossa or Kir Eddin or Kazir touches on two chapters in the book, contemporaries of his who he interacted with, made alliances with, and perhaps even rescued. It's out March 5th, 2024, but you can pre-order it now wherever you get books. You can let me know your thoughts on this or any other episode on Substack, Twitter, and Instagram, where my username is Unruly Figures. If you have a moment, please give the show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other folks discover the show. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Castellanos-Clark. If you are into supporting independent research, please share this with at least one person you know. Heck, start a group chat. Tell them that they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. But for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content, come over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at hello at unrulyfigurespodcast.com. If you'd like to send us something, you can send it to P.O. Box 27162, Los Angeles, California, 90027. Until next time, stay unruly.